Hello, 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 frazzled friends. Welcome to Le Vital Core Salon. Welcome back if you've been here before. And if you're a type A, an imposter, or an overscheduling addict, you are in the exact right place. So I want you to put your feet up or make yourself cozy. Or let's be real, you might be running on a treadmill or working out while you're listening to this. But stick with us. We have a really amazing episode today. You're going to get a chance to meet Gallon Ayers. And I'm going to tell you more about her in a minute. I think it's important to note what today is. It's Valentine's Day. And whether you are someone who loves to sprinkle rose petals and deliver chocolates to every love in your life and just totally get into it, or you're someone who just wants to pull your blanket over your head and kind of just ignore this day, I think it's important to remember there is one love that we are all capable of, and that's self-love and self-compassion. And that's something serendipitously, and it, it wasn't planned, that we talk about today. And if you're someone who has been struggling to feel like you're enough, or to feel like your shit is together and that you are taking care of yourself and making sure you're staying healthy as a person, I can help. And I can help you by strategically bringing your foundational health habits into alignment with your personal and professional goals. It doesn't have to be one or the other. It's not a zero-sum game. You get to be a high performer and you get to be a healthy person. It's just looking at that right mix of what you're doing and applying some, some really strategic changes. And we can look at what you're already doing well. We can leverage your natural strengths. And we can navigate and negotiate what to say yes to and how to say no without a whole lot of guilt, drama, or BS. But none of that is possible unless you reach out. Unless you really believe that you're worth it. So if that's you, do not wait another week to reach out. Do not wait another month to reach out. Or don't, like some of my clients admit when I finally have a first session with them, that they waited years to reach out to me. I want you to reach out to me and we can set up a time to talk. And one of the easiest ways to do that is to head over to the website, levitalcoresalon.com and click on contact. That's going to send an email straight into my inbox and we can arrange a time for you and I to talk about how things could be awesome in this new year of 2018. So again, head over to the website levitalcoresalon.com and click contact. Now, I want to introduce you to today's dynamo of a guest, Gallon Ayers, and give you a little bit of context around this interview. So back literally in the moments before I recorded that impromptu podcast with Nicole Atkins at South by Southwest last year, I was introduced to Chandler Coyle of Music Geek Services, who was a contact of my husband's and just a really lovely person. But I was sort of in a spazoid moment waiting to interview Nicole Atkins and not expecting she would say, yes, let's do it right now. So remarkably, Chandler did not think I was just a complete dipshit, and I thank him for that. And... In the past month or so, he said he took a look at my podcast 
and recommended that I talk to Gallen. Gallen is the daughter of the late and great Kevin Ayers, who was a pioneering singer-songwriter and a member of Soft Machine back in the mid-60s psych rock scene coming out of Canterbury in England. Gallen starts her interview and, and tells us kind of what it was like to grow up with this totally freewheeling, creative dad and then bouncing back and forth between life with him and then a more structured mom who really wanted her to be a high achiever in life. Maybe some of you can relate to some aspects of this story. You know, I think her mom got her way because Gallen is really a force of nature. Gallen Ayers is a musician, and this includes composing, recording, and releasing two albums. And she's going to talk about her most recent album, Monument. She's also a writer. This means song lyrics. This is poetry. She's been writing in journals since she was a young girl. And interestingly, she's able to combine both of these creative pursuits with activism. And she's going to talk about how she's combined music and performing arts with activism. And she talks about even just writing letters as a young girl to really express her opinion and express some of the changes that she wanted to see in the world. Beyond all of these creative and activist pursuits, she is an incredibly smart, well-spoken, and well-studied woman. She has degrees in ethnomusicology and religious studies. She's gone on to earn a master's in Buddhist studies and a master's in psychology of religion. And she continues to be a lifelong learner, both academically speaking, and also as a really ardent student of life. Our conversation is a really rich and fascinating one. I know I learned so much from this conversation and it has stuck with me for quite a long time and I hope it inspires you. Without any further ado, voila, here's the interview with Gallen. Hey Gallen, welcome to Le Vital Core Salon. I'm so happy you're here. Hi, it's wonderful to be here, Cara. Thank you. So in looking at your story, I had no idea where to begin. You know, I, I know I usually send questions to guests, but there are so many things that I want to talk to you about. And I feel this could be like a four hour <laughs> podcast if we let it. <laughs> so I was thinking maybe for the listeners who don't know you and don't know your story, Maybe we can start with just how you were born into this incredibly creative milieu and what growing up was like for you. Well, my middle name is actually Champagne, so it gives you a clue of how I came into the world. <laughs> Amazing. Well, is it? You know, that's the thing. <laughs> it's relevant to life stories and when we talk about one story because when I was little, oh, my God, I couldn't stand that name. I was just, like, bullied. I was like, oh, my God, no, my middle name is C, you know? <laughs> and then as you get older, you're like, I love the fact that I'm not called Chardonnay and I'm called Champagne. And <laughs> you kind of just, it becomes part of who you are and you wouldn't change it for the world. And, you know, our story just changes so much every um, every day, doesn't it? The meaning changes. Uh, but it is true. I was 
brought up in very luckily so in an incredible community in Spain. I actually was born in France um, in a community there with the likes of Caravan and Tangerine Orange and they all had beautiful little kids so we were all friends in um, living in houses with no electricity with you know the running water was the stream with lavender fields etc and then we moved to another beautiful place called Dea in Mallorca and it was a similar scenario with different musicians but everybody was everyone's family and you know there were no boundaries um, which had its positives and its negatives but as a kid you know when you're naive and you you just think it's wonderful that your your parents can see butterflies with you even if there aren't any you're like yay you're on my wavelength (laughs) but then as you get older you're a bit like wait a minute you're meant to tell me that you know you're meant to help me with a with some kind of structure and stuff uh but i where things got a bit more uh, kind of interesting for me was the sense that i didn't just have a life with my dad my parents stood up when i was young and i um i went into the step family with my stepfather my mother and his kids and my stepfather was an angel and just gave me so much support and practical support and structure and my mum gave me discipline so i was able to navigate the both sides of the of the, the brain i guess yeah and so were you were sp- were you splitting time with your dad i was splitting time and it really was Exactly that. Yeah, I was splitting time and I was splitting myself as I got older, I realized, because I would, um, there were just, uh, my father was such an accomplished human being, as was my stepfather. So I would bounce between these these both father figures who both loved me very much and I loved them very much, but they, they had such different ways of looking at the world. And, uh, and I think I benefited in, in the long run from understanding both their values and why they did what they did. And, and, uh, yeah. And so was your stepfather a creative as well? Yes. He, uh, he actually was an architect. Oh, wow. So very structured creativity, right? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) But such a passion. I mean, I've never seen a man so excited with just having all these plans on the kitchen table and just spending hours, what I now recognize was in the zone, you know? And my mother too, my mother just wanted every me to be such a high achiever. And she was a pain in the ass when I was little, but as I get older, I'm just like, wow, I'm just so grateful that she was able, she obviously felt a need to police me in the, you know, in the shadow of my dad, because she could see that my dad, um, my dad's job was to have no boundaries, you know? So... And so what did that split look like? Was it you were with your mom during the school year and your dad at other parts of the year? Or was it more like on a week-to-week basis going back and forth? Going backwards and forwards every weekend for a few years. Then he would go away on tour. So I'd spend most of my time with my mom. And then I'd go on tour with my dad and spend time with him and do projects with him. There was actually quite a, a visible difference in any picture you see where I'm with my mom, I'm in, I'm in like clean clothes and brushed straight hair. And when I'm with my dad, I'm like in a biker's jacket with my hair all up like punk, you know, with just like ice cream up my face. And <laughs> I've been in the bushes and I've been exploring. We had all these fun games. You know, my father was very much about 
creativity and uh, and our favorite thing was making something out of nothing you know that's kind of where we get our buzz uh for example you know looking at an olive tree and pretending that it's a tiger you know that was I wasn't allowed toys or tv or anything it was very much about me having to go and look for things to play with and um read every day play music every day explore every day it was fun yeah that sounds amazingly fun so did you find as you got older and you were sort of going from that experience to then being at your mom's and her wanting you to be kind of this high achiever and and really have your act together and your hair combed and all of that did you rebel against that or how how did that work for you um I <laughs> did it work for me that's the question <laughs> no, I I by the time I got older uh, teenage years I really started noticing that my father's uh kind of natural state of curiosity and philosophy and stuff was becoming um a darker shade of cynicism and it was like a natural progression from from the realities of being you know, an artist and being a musician at that and being in and out of mode, et cetera, and, you know, living from royalty check to royalty check. And then his, his, I think he really never really found another, uh, another love that quickly. So he was alone a lot of the time. And so he had no structure and he kind of started really becoming very cynical in his own words he lost his dream and his usefulness and that didn't sit with him and it really saddened me and upset me and we ended up very much me taking care of him as a as a young lady in a very codependent relationship not that healthy at times especially not for me because I was in this double bind where I was taking care of someone who was showing me what it was like to spend your life not living your dream anymore whilst I wasn't living my dream anymore, I was just becoming the primary caretaker of my father, you know? And, um, so it got tough. It got really tough. And, uh, in there somewhere, I just started writing. I, um, I, I didn't really know how to express what I was feeling because I didn't want to hurt anyone's feelings, which I think is a very feminine quality. I realized. Yes. (laughs) So writing, came to my rescue. I, I've always written. I, I find it a, a beautiful way to to collate all feelings and put some clarity and then I kind of like the manipulation of details, you know? So, um, so your creative yeah. expression at that time, was it more poetry, prose, that kind of thing? Absolutely. Or was it more yeah. music? Um, it was very much writing. I became obsessive writing I, I wrote all the time I would write in any on anything I could I used to be obsessed with rhyming things so I would like my diary was in rhyme impressive um, <laughs> that's really impressive I very quickly got just fascinated with the power of letters and because at the time I was still living in in um in Mallorca, and we were living on with my mom. I'd li- we were living on top of a uh, of a mountain, on a farm, and 
she helped me join every single charity I could think of, you know, so at the time, I guess it was a helping at the time I was going to one of the, the the big live aid things the wwf things defense of the earth greenpeace all these kind of things and different politicians and i just became an obsessive writer telling them that you know i was 11 and i had feelings about what they were doing and i found that an incredible sense of i don't know just a connection that allowed me to kind of get through the negative stuff that was happening in my life. And that's a pretty young age to have to really become a a grown-up woman and face, like, trying to hold a relationship with a parent who's just kind of drifting at that point. I don't don't even know if that's the right word, drifting. It's the right word. It really is drifting. It really is drifting. And you... um the the upside of that is that you you get to learn a lot of things very deeply very quickly so as you get older you have very deep relationships with other people and things because you've had to really go um, the the things that my father I guess put me through because at that point I didn't realize I had a choice and that's you know a bigger conversation about choice and roles as females and you know daughters and mothers and but I benefited from having my heart open so deeply because I had to find a way of loving or understanding and accepting the things he would do to me and people I love you know and because I did love him so much. So he forced my heart open at such a young age, which had his ups and downs as I got older and into my own relationships, you can imagine. But as I put everything in hindsight and understand now much more that it's much more about what I think about things and the meaning I put, you know, that I am the creator of my story, then everything's working out for me. But it was rough. Yeah. Yes. I mean, at... At that young of an age, it's so easy to think, you know, I mean, at age 11, your parents are larger than life for the most part. Yeah. And and your dad in particular was someone who was quite large in life. Yeah. How did you learn to find your own voice and be seen? Actually, I got help. That's the honest truth. I learned that People don't, well, I've learned in hindsight that people don't really change until they get bored. And at first when I learned that, I thought I'd just become as cynical as my dad had become. And I was so, it was such a confusing double bind because I had learned so many wonderful things. I mean, my father taught me everything about Buddhism, vegetarianism, activism, art, music, community, and then to see it all just become so dark and so painful to him and to not have him as a guiding light like I when I was little, um, I was really lost for a while. And I uh, was really lucky. I met this incredible psychotherapist who took it upon himself um, to just help me restructure my relationships with men. And we spent seven years and he... I would just go there every week and he would just listen to me. And he was an incredible, he just taught me, he re-taught me, he re-parented me about boundaries, about what you should expect 
as a human, as a as a woman, and also the way men I should expect men to treat me, you know. Uh, so I was really lucky. Yeah, I very much understand that. I think a run of sort of horrible boyfriends in my twenties <laughs> left me going through a little bit of the same process there and just discovering what agency I had in those relationships. Like this is behavior that you can accept and this is unacceptable behavior. Yes. Um, And if you've spent so much time as a child opening your hearts, because as you said, you know, your parents are God, so you can't afford for them to be wrong. So you have to find a way for, you know, either others to be wrong or yourself to be wrong. And so you grow up either just being terrible to yourself or you have to find a way to restructure the meaning. But then you can end up being very loose in your own boundaries. Yeah, and then people can step right all over you and and you don't realize that actually it's you that's letting that happen because of what you've decided your your worth or the way that you know what's that saying that you you can only love the way you the way you've been loved oh i've never heard that but yes i can i can see how that's very true <laughs> yeah and uh i i think when people sometimes ask me i mean i you know i'm not a licensed therapist even though i've spent my whole life analyzing, you know, I'm a science of myself for sure, but also I'm <laughs> of others and trying to understand. And this is another thing that I, in hindsight has been a blessing. I've been in so much emotional pain and because of my own personality, I very much kept it in, you know, and I'm just very, very voyeuristic and looking out and very, again, I think quite female, this kind of sponging it, you know, and not wanting to really upset anyone around you. I'm often asked, well, you know, Gallon, should I should I go to therapy? Because I, I really know that like the only thing you're going to regret about going to talking therapies is that you didn't go sooner, you know, sooner. Because <laughs> you don't lose out on anything. I mean, to have someone that has no agenda, and that's what's important. Like we forget the agendas that people, even our love, love, loved ones, have because we all have needs. So the great thing is that you're paying for objectivity, you know? Absolutely. I mean, even in my work, I mean, I'm mostly talking to my clients around their mindset and their goals, but how those interconnect with really foundational health habits like diet and rest and exercise and stress management and social relationships. Not like not from a therapeutic perspective, but just being able to be totally clean of of their stuff like i always i always talk about when people ask me about coaching for example i have this metaphor that i've been using for probably like 7 or 8 years now where before Gosh. like we before each session I always picture a chalkboard, which dates me, right? Like I still remember when chalkboards were in classrooms. (laughs) And I always picture before every phone call, I always, even if I'm running around until two minutes before, one minute before every call starts, I just deep breathe and I picture, you know, when the chalkboards were freshly cleaned and just like totally pristine. 
And I mm-hmm. always use that as like a grounding image for me right before a session to make sure that none of my stuff and other people, you know, like the session before or the conversation I had with my husband mm-hmm. at breakfast, that like everything's just clean and quiet and to be able to be totally objective in that moment when I'm listening yeah. to other people talk and what their pain points are and how they're problem solving. And that image has never failed me. And it is such a gift to have someone listen in that way, right? Absolutely. I mean, it's sometimes, you know, the best of minds. And, and, and you can always, I don't know, I, I love turning to nature when I get really confused with people, you know. I'm just like, oh, yeah, I'm going for a walk. And in the kind of cyclical, seasonal, well, where there are still seasons left, you know, but in the very workings of nature, there's such such an objectivity really, isn't there, that I think is really humbling and kind of reminds you of the lack of control that you have, which I think 90% of at least my struggles have been thinking that I could control everything, you know. (laughs) I laugh and, because I know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I every day I'm like, okay, surrender, you know. And I learned so much from my father's death. And I um, that's one of the things I learned, was that I'd spent my whole life trying to control something that was, um, as someone put it, a gravity problem. Meaning... Well, that no one can help anyone that doesn't want to help themselves. And also what's sad is that you also lose the creative relationship that two equals have. Because if one person goes into the caretaker role, which is what happened, then there's no real authentic relationship, you know. Got it, got it. So I I think you bringing up the the idea of control is something, one, on a personal level, that it took me probably from the time I was in, like, I think by, like, junior high, I had a Franklin planner and I had a schedule. And, you know, I was doing it in, like, hot pink calligraphy pens or things like that and doodling. But at the end of the day, like, I already had, like, goals and a calendar and a task list by the time I was in, like, junior high. Amazing. And But, I mean, some parts of my upbringing were wildly out of control. Like, for me, I had a dad who had a really gnarly temper. Um, So certainly that kind of chaos made me seek to kind of control things, which I think you can probably relate to in a lot of ways. (laughs) I just hugged you mentally. Oh, thank you. Received. And and you're getting one back. But I I think, you know, it's really important. And I I think the concept of control, and, and maybe it's because I work with other type A women and have for years, and I'm one that's very much in recovery most of the time in terms of being a type A kind of control freak about things. What helped you start to understand the concept of surrender? And and how did that kind of manifest in your life? I have to mention Buddhism at this point, I guess, because I was introduced to Buddhism very young through literature and koans and different poetry and 
And then I was introduced to vegetarianism and actually environmentalism. Um, and there was different types of Buddhism. But I, I flitted between Zen Buddhism and the art of it and stuff. And then Tibetan Buddhism, which is what I ultimately fell in love with and ended up studying for many years. And I loved the art and I loved the, the, the basics of it. I don't know your knowledge in Buddhism, but I mean, it's, it, it, it starts from, I mean, all Buddhism starts from the basis that suffering is, is a reality and that most problems that we all face start from denying that to yourself or trying to avoid it, you know. And then it gets a bit happier from then. <laughs> and then they start giving you know, ways of like how to, how to like, you know, see see yourself through this. And then I just fell in love with this this the concept of that we're all interconnected and everything's impermanent, and that change always happens. And sometimes change is terrifying, but sometimes it's a, such a blessing. And that really one of the best things that you can tell anyone is that they have choice in how change happens in their life. However, change is going to happen, right? And so I don't know, but it was uh, it was Buddhist. It was this kind of surrendering and at the same time being very proactive that really helped me. Um, and also it helped me to make things less personal. I think when you're young and you haven't really had the – the development of your logical mind to understand that the things that happened or you did or were done to you, that it weren't your fault, right? Yeah. I am. Um, I think that it's very easy for us to fall in this damning, taking everything personally, like, you know, that we're not good enough and all these kind of terrible habits that I suffered for for years. And these things, if left unchecked, end up in eating disorders, end up in addictions, end up, you know, so you go through all this gamut of painful things that really you're doing to yourself, which is all based on the fact that you don't feel good enough for whatever task you've decided, you know, life has given you. And through wisdom and compassion, which is the main tenant, uh, the, the thing to achieve, to achieve enlightenment or to achieve some kind of peacefulness, you know, the, the meditation of it all in Buddhism, that really helped me through life was that you can't have one without the other so to be compassionate and understand that we're all in it together is wise but you need to be wise to be compassionate and you need to be compassionate to be wise and I loved that and I've constantly that I constantly grow um, that feeling every every day I try and learn a bit more about it and now I'm going through a, a lovely period where I'm realizing it that there's no point in just having that for the outside you also have to have compassion and wisdom for yourself and that's what's really helped me too is I've really changed the way my ambition drives me I, I don't fall for this kind of dualistic right wrong go 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 you know I just can't it just is against everything that I feel I am um, I listen to my gut I don't do things until I think I'm ready, even if people think that I'm not. I've fallen into that pattern many times. And I don't get angry at myself again uh, if I can't do something. I have days called recovery days. Yeah. And if it's a recovery day, it's just a recovery day, which means I will not do anything that's scary. And I just won't. 
And what it allows is for days when I'm feeling like I am like queen of whatever, I remember that I also have recovery days. So it allows me just to go for it, you know. This is so amazing. And I think I I can think of four questions that just popped into my head as you Ah. were sharing all of this. One of the phrases that really stuck with me, and I think, so you have a little context. I've I definitely am not someone who's studied Buddhism in any sort of formal way. I think I was I was a kind of weird high school kid that like when I got my driver's license and you know wasn't supposed to leave like my town or my county, I skipped school one day to drive to Boston because I heard I could buy a neti pot, which was you know ah, something no, I yes. had only read about in magazines and I wanted one for so long. And so I, you know, I was a straight A student that skipped school to go buy a neti pot in high school. Um, oh my God, we would have been best friends, you know that, right? <laughs> <laughs> the weird, like, super good girl, but like, like, rebellion, but not like the typical, re- like, my parents both smoked and, you know, not drank heavily, but like, I mean, I think my dad was probably like a two pack a day habit and my mom so f- was probably a one pack a day habit for a long time. So I think, you know, my form of rebellion was often like, I'm going to eat broccoli and brown rice and read Natural Ah! Health magazine and cut school to go buy a neti pot. But meditation was something that I, I feel like from a young age was really interested in, but didn't get it. Like I couldn't get my head around it. And then, you know, I sort of went through checking all the like, quote unquote boxes of success, like getting into a school that I wanted to and studying accounting and be, you know, going into yeah, trouble. Your story is yeah. so, it's fascinating and it's bizarre. So high achiever. <laughs> high achiever but then like I achieved, I was achieving all of these things at a pace that I'm like, well, by 50, I'll have like the whole list checked off if I just keep going down this path, but just deeply hating it inside. And I always would flirt with this idea of meditation, you know, and dabble here and there and try it, but not really get to it in a, not really understand it or, or that I was doing it right all along, right? Because I think when you meditate, there's this, well, I'm not doing it right. I didn't yeah. you know, achieve oh, enlightenment no. in these last 19 minutes. Which, um, by the way, those two words are so incongruous together. Achieve and enlightenment. It's just, you know, I mean, that would be like... <laughs> You could just take those two words and just take them around, I don't know, any of the Buddhist countries and they'd be like, they don't work together. Yeah, true. I never even thought about that. But I guess, you know, for the last couple of years and for the last, I think at the time we're recording today, I'm probably somewhere be around 460 days of consecutive meditation. That's so, incredible. So I share that so you have some context for where these these other That's questions fantastic. are coming from. Thank you. It is, you know. It's some... fantastic for you and for all of us because I really believe that the more people that meditate, and, and I think my loose definition of, of meditation, because there are so many. <laughs> Mine is, is people, loose too. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's, it's really about people that are coming from an authentic place and, and from they're coming from their body. I mean, I am... I've only been in the States two years and maybe this happens in Europe, but I, I haven't seen it as much in Europe. I hear 
I'm terrified, but by the way, um, sleeping pills, painkillers and things are given to people. Mm-hmm. I've got to doctors with like, or whatever, and they hand me like really strong things. I'm like, I don't need this, you know? <laughs> and I see it with my friends and I see it in the news and I see it with the, with the opium, you know, out of control, the opiates here and stuff. And I just think that we are becoming these dis- disassociated uh, things that just have this other persona online. We're medicated to the nines. So our bodies have these pockets of non-awareness everywhere. We just walk around with no energy going into these places. And then we wonder why we're getting cancer and Alzheimer's and stuff. It's because we're not in our bodies to take care of it and go, hey, cell, I do recognize you. Go back to your place, you know, because there's no one home. So I believe that everybody that meditates, I, I believe, has a better chance of figuring out where those, let's call them numb zones are and do something about them. It doesn't mean they won't get them, they won't get the, you know, the negatives necessarily, but I do think you have a better chance of, of, of just living a healed, healthier life. It is different. You know, I, I feel like I've been sharing, you know, just on social media, you know, day 50, day 100, day 365, you know, some of these milestones, because I'm excited. And, you know, I'm constantly met with the question, well, what do you feel like for having invested in that? Like, and it's not anything that I, I can totally describe in words, but there was one instance probably about a month or two ago now. And I was standing in the kitchen in the morning and Craig and I were both like, I'm making tea, he's making coffee. Like we're sort of bouncing into each other, trying to get to the sink and cups and plates and Mm. things like that. And it was interesting. We have one of those kitchen sprayers, right? And next to the sink. And at one point, Craig went to grab it and he actually squeezed the handle instead of just picked it up. And it shot water like over his shoulder and like directly into my face. <laughs> and it was one of those moments, and I hate, like, I am so a, an indoor cat by nature, like that, mm-hmm. where I don't like be, it was cold, and it was still dark out, and it, Aww. I just didn't want cold water shot in my face. But it was one of those moments where I think a, a year or two years ago, I probably would have been like, Craig, what the fuck? and the reality was like this time I sort of saw that thought come through my mind and was like I just sort of punctured it like a bubble like no I don't no this isn't that bad it's just cold water and it's like I got to see my thoughts and I felt like that is that is how meditation is different right like it's not this thing that you feel every moment of every day. I mean, there are definitely days, and I don't know about you, where my meditation practice might be 19 minutes of two squirrels chasing nuts in my brain and one minute of actual quiet. Um, oh, it sounds like mine. <laughs> no, I, I, but you know what? You're showing up, and that's where I think a lot of people uh, lose when they try these battles like diets or stopping something or, you know, these kind of things, these willpower-based things. And let's say they'll 
uh, eat chocolate cake. You know, be really good, really good, eat chocolate cake. And I went, oh, well, fuck it. I've eaten chocolate cake now, so I'm just going to eat another one. And, then, and that's not how it works because all those days beforehand that you didn't smoke the cigarette, that you didn't eat the chocolate cake, whatever, that you da, 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 were actually an accumulate. you know, there's, there's, there's something positive there already to work. Just because you've messed up once doesn't mean you can't just stop, take a deep breath, have compassion for yourself and continue back with the intention that you wanted, you know, rather than, oh, well, I give up and this kind of thing. And the meditation, I mean, for me, meditation, I would describe it as like going into a field of flowers. And I'm kind of starting to learn to see life like this in the sense that there's so many ways that you can experience a something. So for me, it would be like a field of beautiful flowers. So for me, the first thing I would probably see is I would just, I'm a feely person, so I would feel the wind and I would feel the weather and I would probably feel the petals and how beautiful and like uh, frail they are, but so vibrant in color. And then I'd go into the color because I love painting. So I would just look at all different colors and how they play against each other and the light and the clouds and this whatever. And then I'm quite a geek, so I'd be really interested in like photosynthesis and how the climate change is affecting them and whether there's like, you know, there's, there's more, you know, why are there more red flowers? Then I'd be happy there are red flowers because I know that bees love red, so I'd be happy to know that they're getting food, you know. And, but then there's this other thing where it's like, if you, I believe, meditators, I would, and I would, I would start thinking about the interconnectedness and the water that's feeding and the water that's coming from the lake and the sun and this and how, and how the neighbors are affecting it. And, that to me is Buddhism. It's kind of a meditation. It's this awareness that we're all interconnected. So it's crazy for me to not be, you know, an activist is such a weird concept because we we, we should, I, I can't imagine being anything else because it's in my interest and also I care about making other people happy, you know, so. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And that's such a beautiful image, like sitting here listening to you. It's just the visual <laughs> of it is amazing. <laughs> Thank you. And Galen, you, you've mentioned the word compassion a couple of times. Yeah. And I don't know if this is just more the types of circles that we're running in and the things that we're probably both reading in common and things like that. It just seems like compassion to me has become this really like in vogue idea that everyone's like compassion this authenticity this compat like i feel like some of these words are sort of being out there a little bit more in the mainstream but also kind of getting bent and twisted and dented for lack of a, a better word to describe it uh, how but, do you, I mean, like yeah. i guess how do you like what is passion and especially self-compassion because I think there are a lot of women listening that are very much type A and overachievers and perfectionist and there's so much pressure internally externally what does self-compassion look like to you and 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 what can those women listening take away from it well the word compassion you know is rooted in calm community you know calm and passion the things that tie us together, and I, um, I think what I like about compassion is that it's not right or wrong in my mind. It just is, and that's kind of the Buddhist concept of being in the present. And I like to see it as the third space, 
the third space between this Cartesian dualistic, uh, yes, no, you know, right, wrong kind of upbringing that most people in the West have. And I would say to anyone who cared <laughs> that, that my, my best realization has been that I always have the choice to add meaning, create meaning, change meaning in anything that happens in my life. And so no one can ever take that away from me, no matter how bad my outside situation might be. And um, that's an ongoing process of learning to understand what are the things that are stopping you from making authentic choices. And authenticity to me is very, a spe very specific word. Uh, authenticity to me is you, you know it. It's something where your body is it's like, it's your body, mind and soul go. Yes. You know, like you, you can tell an authentic piece of music when there's no dissonance. And when you feel dissonance with any parts of that, when you go to make a decision, there's something that you're not aware of in your mind, body and soul that isn't quite connected to an authentic self. Um, I think that this authentic self is sometimes disconnected from us because of all the collective traumas we're going through, but also personal traumas. And the traumatized self will split and it will split into creating a persona that can handle the shit that is given whilst keeping your beautiful, lovely child self inside and intact, because that's its job. Its job is to make sure that you never get hurt. So if it needs to create a version of you, it will. Got it. It makes me think, and this is going to be such a sideways metaphor to our conversation, but considering you shared how you were a geek earlier, I will mm -hmm. confess to everyone who does not know this about me already. I am a huge Marvel geek. Like all the Marvel. Yeah. All the ridiculous like superhero movies and just oh, this Marvel. like. I thought it marbles. Oh yeah, no, no. Marvel. I was like, oh, that's so pretty. <laughs> but it, what you, what you just said just gave me such a visual hit in terms of, I picture sort of when Iron Man puts on his, his yeah, sort of superhero completely. costume like he's just a mortal man and then all of a sudden this armor just like forms like a glove yeah. around him and that that we do that like in the face of drama for sure absolutely and it's great and we should continue to do it but in a, in a way that we are aware and we're using it for our self because what you don't want to do is use it to do things like shut out love from your life or shut out things that you really want to do like um, painting or writing or because you have all these you know awful voices in your head so it's there's no magical formula on how to get to the stage it's a it's an ongoing process that changes every day the the the, the good news <laughs> is that as overwhelming as it sounds to grow yourself, that is, I believe, our biggest job is to grow, you know, rebirth ourselves. And are you familiar with the work of William James? I am not. Enlighten okay, me, so please. William, well, 
William James, he kind of was the father of pragmatism, and they call him the father of American psychology, and he's a wonderful man, and he's written many books, but one of them is The Variety of Religious Experiences. So he was the first person to catalogue and think that it was meaningful to catalogue uh, people's experiences and dream and religious experiences and to try and find a way to scientifically categorise them. So in the midst of his research, um, which is also, by the way, the the metaphorical Bible to psychology of religion, which is what I studied in my, my, my first master's and um, second one. And I fell in love with one of his concepts, which was first born and twice born. He managed to, to, to figure out that there were two types of people. And when I say this to you, I bet you're going to have like, oh my God, I can put my friends in one or the other because this is what happened to me. <laughs> so the first people... They just go down the street and they just smile and everything looks wonderful and they just go on about their day. They don't have a need to ask for questions. They don't really have a need to get in depth with things. They're just happy things are working out and that's kind of where they stand, right? And then there's this other kind of group of people called twice born. And these are people that something's happened to them in their life. And they've had to really reassess that they you know, make sure they really want to stay here, make sure, you know, what's it all about. It's, it's been something that's been traumatic enough that it's ripped some of the meaningful things of their life. You know, so they've had to sacrifice something. Right. And these people go down the street and actually see potential dangers and see you know, the faces in the shadows kind of thing, you know, and they need to question and they want to have arguments with you. And, I don't know about you, but when I saw this category in such a big meta way, I thought, God, that's so true. And I really related to the second born. And I just made a decision at um, 30, yeah, at 30, I just pressed a reset button in my mind. And I just, I really see my life from, you know, 30 onwards is completely different to, you know, 30 years behind me. And I have the right to do that because our life stories are just that, they're stories. And when my dad died, I was the only one that really had to decide how to finish the last chapter. And I really had to see it like a book. And I realized everybody had opinions, editorial opinions. Everybody had different, you know, ways that they wanted to, to end this amazing life career. And I really had to learn about what was meaningful and what deep down in my heart I knew would be cool for my dad that he would have liked me to have done he did ask me in his will to take care of everything you know so I knew that I was the person that he trusted and he gave me such a gift by doing that because I really learned about that about life stories check out what you're saying to people check out you know what you're saying why you're saying and the bits that don't work for you make a note and change them how do you think that freedom has changed you since 30? I always put my recovery first. And what I mean by recovery, that could be, you know, an hour walk and taking my supplements every day, um, doing something that I truly enjoy that no one else cares about, <laughs> doing something for myself. It can be, it can be anything, but it's, it's just a feeling that I know that I've grown which is this kind of, this understanding that 80% of anything should be your inner game. 
all my habits are based about in a game. I can drive my husband crazy because I can look like I haven't done anything in two weeks. And then all of a sudden, everything appears in 24 hours. And he's like, oh, my God, you're a magician. You're a witch. How did all this happen? (laughs) This doesn't happen to anyone. And I've been working. I've been visualizing. I've been dreaming. I've been writing it out. I've been writing lists. I've been, you know, I I don't believe in just because you can make the call to make the call. If it doesn't feel right, if I'm really grumpy with you, my love, I'm not going to do that call because it's not going to work out. I'm not going to put the energy into it. And that is what I really believe. I think ultimately we are, we are energetic beings. And I think our energy kind of, um, you know, presents us before we open our mouth. Absolutely. I, you are so talking my language, I think, and just getting comfortable, especially as women, Mm. with he- not only hearing that intuition but but recognizing its importance and i can so resonate with with what you're saying because there are times where for me it's i always think of it as like connecting dots like i see a bunch of you know even just with my business and things that need to happen with my my practice and my work that there's these moments of there's something broken over here or there's a pain point over here or a conversation that needs to be had over here in this situation over here and things feel very disparate. And when I take the time and make sure that I'm taking care of myself, I love your concept of recovery. Um, I think our form of recovery is quite similar. Um, When I'm taking that time to just like unplug even, you know, some days it's just for an hour, but like going outside and just bringing music or doodling in a notebook or even adult coloring that's just so mindless, but Mm. like nice and grounding. I think, you know, all of these things can sometimes just gel. Like, so all of these things that feel like discrete problems kind of all over the place or tasks to be done when the energy is right, you can knit them together quite quickly. Absolutely. And the energy is is fueled by the meaning behind it. So really, you know, if you're feeling shitty, go to bed because you actually it's been proven that your brain is more creative when you're lying down, right? And just close your eyes and just feel it, smell it, think about it, how you want it to look like, whatever it is that you're thinking, like anything. And... By the time you get there, which you will, you'll walk into that place and you'll be like, oh, wait a minute, and there's Joe and that's that corner and that's that light that I imagined and, and it will, really will happen, you know. And it will only happen because you're prepared. And that one of my dad's favorite lines, which I loved, was that chance favors the prepared mind. Ooh. And I'm sure he nicked it because <laughs> all, all us writers, that's what we do, right? Um. But I loved it and I've used it my whole life. You know, be prepared. Be, just tell the universe that this is what you want. And I don't mean this in a kind of demeaning, hippie kind of way. You know, I'm, I, I think we're very alike, actually. I, you know, I've studied. I've, I need academic evidence. I need it to work. <laughs> I draw the line at things like dream catches. And so there's a kind of tie-dye, I can't stand it. There's a side of me that's, that is a bit cynical about some of the energy work and some of the workshops out there and some of the kind of claims that healers do. And, and I think, and I think yes. that's healthy 
because I, I think it's good to be critical to not critical just to be negative, but to be constructively critical. Well, how is you know how really are these claims going to work? Um, but I do think as writers, and I think I saw in your story that you want to start painting again. Did I make that up? I'm actually. So the project that I'm working on, I think in eight years of working and mostly remotely with women, so spending a lot of time looking at my computer with a pair of headphones on having a conversation or being on my phone, um, I recognized, and even before that, like thinking back to what my skill set is, like my formative years in the work in the workforce were coming into painful, chaotic situations asking a lot of questions, analyzing data, um, really motivationally interviewing people to understand like what's the problem they're not talking about in between the lines, and mm. then coming up with a strategic plan to turn things around. And, you know, initially it was in trouble debt restructuring and bankruptcy, so coming into quite large public companies with a team of people and like what's going on here and how do we fix this? And just being unafraid in that kind of chaotic place, like, okay, let's let's take a breath, let's ask some questions, let's critically think here. Then, you know, in the sort of middling of my career, a lot of it was in the startup space. So less hostile and and panicked an environment, because I think that energy got to me. Like just being steeped in a bunch of really dude, masculine, ego-driven panicky chaotic situations with like all sorts of like ego stuff happening I think I was just absorbing a lot of that and it was doing a number on my body so I sort of downshifted into the startup space and working with early stage startups it was before things got broken so coming in and kind of just like hey you three guys in pajamas don't have an accounting system like how the heck do you know what's going on here and sort of just kind of slowly biting off projects and, you know, not having to travel and working with people that had a little bit more kindness um, in their hearts, I think, in most cases. And then through my own health journey and literally getting to a point where my guts were just like falling apart. You know, it was sort of that time in the startup, I was starting to go back and learn like learn how does the digestive system work and doing kind of that studying you know like when my doctor wasn't helping me alleviate the symptoms I was like well I guess this is on me this is my digestive system I should know how this works or how it's supposed to work like what am I even comparing myself to and so like through that time in my life it was really just healing myself on a physical basis but also kind of asking the bigger questions like, what caused this in the first place? Because if I just like fix myself and then go right back to the same lifestyle, this is just going to happen again. Smart. And so it was through that work, you know, people started reaching out like, how did you lose all that weight? How did your skin clear up? How did you stop shitting your pants in public? Because that's how bad it got for me <laughs> at one point in my life. And, you know, as like a big gleaton. Yeah, intolerance for starters, right? <laughs> yes, that was definitely part of it for sh for sure. Among just also like just chronic, unremitting stress and living in New York and 
you know, my first job traveling 90% of the time and sleeping on conference room floors and getting yelled at by people you worked with and getting yelled at by the client. And, you know, I think one at one point on one job, my job was every day at 3 p.m. to call the bank syndicate and have to negotiate even like these like minutest of payments because the bank obviously didn't want to give a failing company any more money but there were certain things like a heating bill so pipes didn't burst and pollute you know rivers in northern new england on a freezing night like that had to be negotiated so i think like through all of that you know just recognizing there's there's got to be a different way no, it just sounds to me, I mean, immediately I was like, wow, that's fantastic because by com- bringing that, you see, that's compassion. True. That's that's kind of saying, you know what, this just, this is just, I'm going to take care of myself. I'm going to be compassionate to myself and find out what's going on. And by doing that, it reached your mind that you deserve much more than the situation you were in. But I, I agree with you that the body was a great place to start because if you're not taking care of you I mean for example last year I realized I'd, um, I did a, a medical and I had a huge deficiency in vitamin D and magnesium Ooh. and within two months I just took care of it and it's changed my life I feel just I feel like I actually you know love people again no, <laughs> and I imagine <laughs> I imagine you were probably experiencing a ton of anxiety at that point too because when especially magnesium is low, anxiety can be quite a troublesome yeah. symptom. And the, the thing is, so we both share, I think, this because of health uh, problems, we're, we are blessed with having such deep understanding of nutrition. I mean, I am definitely the, the, the one who's, you know, friends will call and be like, I feel X, what should I take? And I'll be like, well, I would do this. Or, you know, my husband, he's just recovered from a big illness and stuff and 90% of it I you know I just fed him the exact things that I'd spent years learning I had um you know all one one of the things growing up was an, uh, bulimia for I've got like more than a decade you know and it was a secret bulimia no that's how like unaware the people around me were that I was able to keep it secret for so long <laughs> anyway wow and I because of it though I reached the same point as you and I ended up buying like huge books in nutrition and reading everything going to all these workshops you know going to nutritionists befriending them and really them becoming my mentors you know and I'm so blessed now I can just I love the healing power of food it's it's such a an easy way to make choices. And that's one of the things that I've really learned too that makes me happy coming into my, I guess, fourth decade is I love making decisions based on how much choice they're going to leave me with at the end of the, the decision. So I will always look to make the decision that leaves me with the best choices because really that's really what decision-making is, isn't it? It is. And you only really make six or seven big decisions in your life, you know, who you marry, who you're whatever. There, there are some major ones, and then it kind of sprouts from there. So one of the things that I hear from the women that I'm talking to is there's this noise of decisions. I agree with you. Like, we're not making as big of a decision about things, you know, on the daily you know, there are these really pivotal moments in life. And then there are all these smaller, like, sub-decisions. 
For the women who I talk to that just have a lot of static and noise in there, like they feel really trapped by the amount of small decisions that they need to make in a day. Is that something you've ever experienced? Like, like that real need to kind of just get out of your own head, as they say? And, and what has helped you if, if you have experienced that? Would you agree with me? I mean, I, I think that we're really experiencing an epidemic of overwhelmment yeah. and no one's really yes. talking about it. I am. <laughs> right. Okay, I am. I'm starting to. And it's saturation of everything, you know. I mean, you're like on social media, I'll sometimes, let's say, like a Facebook or something, I'll, I'll just stroll, uh, I'll scroll through the kind of like the feed of everybody. And in three minutes, I haven't replied to the kid dying in Uganda. I haven't signed the petition for the Redwoods and whatever. I haven't looked at the video about the dying bear. I haven't listened. I end up feeling like a terrible human being. And that's only like two minutes of looking at Facebook because there's so many things thrown at you, constantly making decisions. As a woman in New York, one of the things I couldn't stand about living in Manhattan proper was that between going to an appointment and coming out of my apartment, I had to face at least 12 half-naked women in adverts selling me stuff. <laughs> you know, So I'm constantly being made to make choices, and I didn't want that in my space. I think it's a really interesting, loose uh, time right now with the roles. I, I notice it in younger men, very confused about how to be a man in inverted commas. And I, I have younger brothers and we talk about it, you know, and women also kind of confused and really loving the support that the, the large world is giving them now with the Me Too campaigns and all these kind of incredible things that have to happen to finally create a balance, you know. But it's going to take a lot of time, and I don't know if there's a way to fix anything. So I don't know if that's a decision to worry about. I think the decisions that you make personally are about balancing. What can you do every day to balance the balance in your favor? So I'm not going to be able to stop all those advertisers getting to me and describing to me what they think a woman should look like, et cetera, et cetera, from A to B. But what I can choose is A to go a different route, B to move, <laughs> or C to change the meaning of it, you know. Or So I can make choices that balance it out. It, I, I, I've grown out of, and it really helps me because I'm a terrible empath, and yeah, I just wanted to fix everything. And now I'm just, I balance. Now I'm just going to go, okay, well, that's, I'm just going to say something lovely, or I'm just going to be kind, or I'm just going to, whatever. I, I, I don't, I've, I don't have delusions that I can fix anything anymore. And that makes me make better choices, I think, for me. Does that make any sense? Yes. And again, deeply resonate. Right. You know, I remember being in a very early therapy appointment and therapy was something I didn't find until probably my early mid 20s living in New York. I mean, I was I grew up in a town where the diversity was largely you were French Catholic or Irish Catholic. 
And oh, wow. neither of those groups were really down with therapy. Um, yes. So it was something that I came to on my own and kind of at a place where I was like, I don't have all the tools I need. This seems like it would be a good option. But coming to it with sort of Catholic guilt and just shame. <laughs> and like like yeah. my, my parents will think I'm a failure or broken or, you know, just all of that shit that you can ascribe to it. And I remember in a very early session saying to the therapist, like, I don't know. I just feel like I have this really heavy burden of empathy. Mm-hmm. And that was long before I knew the concept of of what an empath is and, and how that, that looks and can affect things and things like that. But I used to always refer to it as a burden. And, you know, now at age 40, I see it a little bit more as a gift and just recognize I have to, I have to do the things that keep me in balance, like you say. Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, I, even from doing, um, the, the the latest one I read, which I love, is so. I one of the things that I do at night is write lists what I'm going to do the next day because if not, I'm not going to sleep. Uh, so you know, there are still control things that I have, <laughs> and um, and at night I also I, I think about my day and I do my best to let go of the things that I haven't achieved or I, and I forgive myself, which is very new for me. But in the morning, rather than go straight to my phone and look at all the emails that everybody else needs me to do for them. I look at my list and I prioritize what I want to do with my day. And this kind of making boundaries, I think is something very new to me because when I grew up, where I grew up, how I grew up, it was very unsexy, uncool and still is, which is uh, a problem for me still when I think about it is to, to have boundaries to say no to be like well actually no and you know because you get labeled um prim or prude or boring or you know all these things you get square <laughs> square you know and actually I make jokes about it like well my dad took all my drugs for me so I'm fine <laughs> so I did it in uterus I got a good deal you know so I've got into that stage now where I'm okay, but it was painful at first. And the the empathy thing, I think it's going to be really interesting how women in the arts too, I've noticed, you know, how the empathy card plays out. I am, I'm fascinated by the, the kind of, I guess it's still called in many ways the the female confessional style of writing. Have you ever heard someone say that? No. What do you What do you describe? Well, a nice nin, you know, and then all these other ladies oh, like uh, Fitzgerald, like um, Zelda, and stuff, you know. And, and I guess when it comes to singers, people like Alanis Morissette comes to mind very strongly, and Fiona Apple, and he's kind of like in the in the singing genre, a lot of them are screaming their pains, their inner lives, you know. Yes, um, and quite literally. Yeah, and it's interesting to me. And then when you look at a lot of women that have changed or have been really influential to other women, they do become very primal. They're not pretty. Bjork's voice can be beautiful, of course. It's an incredible instrument, but it's not pretty. 
you know, and I think you can really tell a lot of people's culture by the way the women sing. Um, have you ever noticed, for example, the whole genre in France is women who sing like baby girls? Like they're yes. not, you know, except for Edith Piaf and, and a few that were allowed. There's this kind of, you know, whispery, I mean, what does that say about how they want how people want to hear women, you know, no confrontation, no opinion, just this kind of cutesy vibe, you know? Yes. I'm very much going to the, the Carla Bruni. Yeah. And it's, um, and it's, it's just an observation. And I doing this record was interesting for me on many levels because anything I think artistic, if done authentically, can be a healing tool for for the person who does it and then in turn because I think we're all really similar can be healing for the people that listen to it I really had to it was really difficult for me I had to really face up to a lot of realities um, of big holes and lacks in the relationship between my dad and I and and the album ended up being all the things I wish I'd said and didn't say and could have said and didn't say and how he affected my life. And and I didn't use my masters of whatever academic brain, which I could have. And I love, I love puns. I love playing around with words. I love that intellectual mask, which can be a split for many people, you know? Mm-hmm. No, I allowed myself to be, I guess, conventionally feminine and just come from a place of emotion and heart and genuine just blah so I think this is this is a question I normally ask towards the end of the interview but I think it makes sense to ask here you just use this expression conventionally feminine Mm -hmm. how do you define being a, a modern woman what does that mean to you Modern woman. I don't know the answer, Cara. (laughs) A modern woman is, um, I mean, for example, yesterday I went to the movies and they they happened to have all these beautiful old vintage posters of, you know, all these starlets were in them. And all of them were either in the kitchen, (laughs) either half naked or holding a broom. Oh. (laughs) And... My husband, who's a film director, and I giggled. And I went, wow, isn't that just incredible how chauvinistic it all was? And he's like, yeah, but it's not like that anymore. And and then I saw the picture. Have you ever seen The Informer by Mary Pickford? It was the only chick holding a gun. I was like, oh, we've gone that way. <laughs> wow. I have seen yeah, some yeah. old Mary Pickford films, but I, I haven't mm-hmm. seen The Informer. Well, this is a great poster of her just looking straight at you with a gun. And um, so somewhere in the middle is the modern woman. I think the modern woman, I would love to think, is kind of the stuff that we've been talking about, that it's someone who is aware of the roles that society wants to pin down on them, where it be a religious role, where it be um, a conventional daughter, wife, you know, sexual orientation, any of these kind of conventional meaning that they're in a book somewhere as, you know, part of like, this is what healthy behavior is and all this kind of whatever. (laughs) And to be aware that 
they have choice and not just choice because sometimes you don't have choice, you know, because of practical reasons or because of one reason or the other, but you always have choice in your mind to uh, change the meaning of things. And by in doing that, it's asking yourself, um, you know, the right questions. And if you don't know what the right questions are, surround yourself with someone who you think that does and ask them the questions and eventually they'll tell you the questions too. And by questioning everything, Ah, yes. I Questioning think and critical thinking. You're, you're yes. speaking my language today. Right. So absolutely that. And I think that to have compassion for really also staying in the feminine, in the sense of, you know, we do have a feminine body, which goes through cyclical things once a month and et cetera, stuff. And that creates a certain type of temperament, I think. And I think those things should be, um, should be honored. And I think that being a female should be honored for the things that being a female is. I don't think men and women are the same. And I think men should be allowed to honor being male too. And I don't think being a woman should be an excuse to not do anything you want to do anymore in this world. Ah, such great words. And Galen, I I want to ask a more practical question because I, yeah. I think you also used one of my other like favorite words, pragmatism earlier and more in probably an academic sense, but I live it in mm-hmm. the applied sense a lot of the time. I am so deeply enjoying this conversation, but I know that- Thank there are, you, me too. Oh, mm-hmm. it's such a joy. But I think there are women listening that like they hear Buddhism, they hear meditation, they hear the kind of balance that you're seeking. Like when you when you ask yourself, like, what can I do every day to bring some balance into my life? And being I mean, I can hear how tapped in you are to your intuition. And I I can see that and recognize it. I, I guess the question I have is for women listening who who some of these concepts might be totally new. Yeah. Right? Like, are there starting places? Like, I mean, I I know this is a huge question as I ask it, right? Like, (laughs) are there starting places in terms of Buddhism? Are there starting places that have worked really well for you in terms of just the non-negotiable type of self-care? that you need to do on your recovery days or that you need to think about in terms of balancing all of the days? I'm, I'm sort of rambling. This is the most ill-formed no, question. I, I, I apologize, no, but I, I think you know where I'm, I think fine. you know where the spirit of this question comes from. Well, the spirit of the question, I, I think it would just be, I um, find do whatever it takes to have some time in the day to really connect to your inner voice and that inner voice will come in the form of an image it will come in the form of a, of a voice it'll come in the form of a feeling it'll come in the form of a aching muscle it'll come in the form of remembering someone's phone number whatever form it comes in listen to that and start with that don't ignore any of the dreams that you're having, don't ignore any of the signals because I really believe that the universe 
And when I mean the universe is the energetic fields around us and nature is actually set up to be a positive experience. I mean, look at what it's done. It's created earth. So I um, I think it's really important to take care of your body, number one, because if you have, you know, there's no point going to therapy if you hit your head when you're a kid and you haven't checked to make sure you don't have a brain injury, which will affect your memory, will affect your, therefore, your sense of identity, you know, all these kind of things. So when pragmatic is really just see where you are now, take a deep breath, have compassion for yourself that that's okay where you are now and start from now. And while you're being happy, being in the now, decide what you want to do next. I normally go for the things that scare me the most. This is in my non-recovery days. <laughs> because I know that in the places that scare me most, that's where change can really happen in my life. Because change happens when you stand in the places that you've never had the guts to stand in before. Oh, and I you, love that quote. Right. You just need to show up. And that can be really difficult. So that's where you have to arm yourself with tools. And also that it's compassionate. I'm going to use the word a lot because you told me everybody uses it. So I'm just going to keep using it (laughs) till I make it mine. (laughs) To understand that there's no such thing as right or wrong. There's a cyclical. For me, I've noticed a cyclical, natural cycle of things. And we do the best we can every day. And then we do a bit more the next day. And if you think of yourself in those ways, rather than, reach these peaks where you need to your willpower and you need your all your strength and then you feel disappointed and you you know fall off your throne and then you're upset and it takes you three days to get back on your thing which is exhausting you know I think things like meditation can help good nutrition can help I think dancing I think being in a good relationship is super important to make sure that your relationships are um are symbiotic that you're both getting something out of it and uh, those are good starting points, I think. Um, but I'd also say don't ever wait for anyone to change because you'll oh. be waiting all your life. <laughs> you um, certainly don't hold your really, breath. Well, don't hold your breath for sure because then, you know, yeah. forget it. <laughs> like, I really think that, um, yeah, and no, I think that, that, you know, don't take it personally, but you just, you have to do the work. Yes. And that's important, like really showing up and being honest with yourself with the work. There's no magic bullet. (laughs) Yeah. And I have to be honest because, look, it's not always easy to be honest with yourself. And sometimes you might think you're being honest with yourself, but you're not. And why is that? It's because maybe you've been through things in your life that have caused what I mentioned before, have caused you to split and do things that your heart didn't really want to do. And so you still feel ashamed and you're still confused the way you did it, but you know it was you that did it, but it wasn't really you that did it. And and I think when you have feelings like that, that's when you should really not rely on your friends and your loved ones and stuff. You should go and see a therapist or any modality that you like. It doesn't have to be, you know, psychoanalysis. It could be anyone that you trust. It could be counseling. It could be even start with a yoga, you know, and just get your body, whatever way it works for you to start 
building your own self-awareness in the places that you instinctively know just got a little bit away from me. Yes. And I think one thing that I encourage with the with the women that I'm working with, and granted, a lot of them don't reach out to me and ask for help until they are really, really depleted and burnt out and not taking care of themselves or not able to keep a handle on all the things that they should be doing or must do or need to do. And I'm using air quotes all over the place as I, as <clears throat> I say that. You know, they're, they're not doing the basic things. And a lot of times I just point back to like, let's start introducing pleasure and play. Right. And yeah. whether that comes in in terms of let's just start bringing more vegetables into your diet. You haven't seen those for a couple of years. Let's, tr <laughs> you know, let's try to get some good food in. What would be yeah. pleasurable? What vegetables do you even like? You know, and just breaking down the problem into like we don't ha you don't have to like go gluten free vegan overnight. And yes. maybe that's not even the right diet for your body. But just kind of recognizing like. Just start somewhere because what you're doing and what you can do today is going to be better than where you were yesterday. Yes, and we have the sickness of time traveling. <laughs> How so? Well, I mean, I must, I must be time must time travel four hundred times a day. I'm thinking of the <laughs> past. I'm thinking of the future. I'm thinking of someone else's past, someone else's future. I'm, then I hang out a second where I am now and then this and I'm constantly time traveling and if we would just bring awareness to that and kind of see it as wait a minute today is what's going to be tomorrow and you know I'm living what was in the past so today and only today is the space and the time where anything can happen and nothing will, none of this will ever happen again and this is where gratefulness comes in and joy comes in and there's kind of like gratitude and it's so important to write it down. I think whenever I'm really losing the plot, I just write down all the things that are right and all the things that I have. And really then, again, that back to choice that we were talking about, choose what you focus on. Who's telling you that you have to focus on that? You're not a tree, you can move, you know? <laughs> so... It really is about using your brain. And as you know, and I know, to use your brain properly, you need to get your omega oils. You need to get away from all the electronic, you know, like radiation. You need to get your B vitamins and your, you know, you need to use your mind. You need to go, you need to read. You need to do puzzles. You need to sing. You need to dance. Get your coordination. You really, the brain is so important. And if you think in any way you've had a brain injury of any sort, Go get a scan. There's a great guy, Dr. Amen. Yes. And he has these amazing, um, you know, these amazing clinics where you can go and just get your brain scan in different ways. And then it, they can give you specific, you know, show you exactly how your brain's developed and your skull and, and, and how it's affecting your behavior. Yes. I think people forget that, that there is sometimes a physiological or biological driver of of our moods. And Absolutely. so, you know, when I'm working through food stuff with people and having them, I do a lot of data collection. So when, when clients sign up to work with me, 
Mm-hmm. I can certainly read about what how things are supposed to work in their body, but I'm a deep, deep believer that everyone's body is uniquely different and it has been impacted by the environment around it at every given moment for an entire lifetime be- leading up to when I'm speaking to them. So from I can always point back to like, well, the textbook way this should be working is this. Can you tell me what you're experiencing? And a lot of times between sessions, I send my clients off to track their bowel movements or to track their, you know, a food diary or to track, you know, with a recent client, I just, I asked her whenever she was hungry, she couldn't figure out why she was eating and was very, very out of touch with just even the sense of satiety and hunger. And I asked her for homework, whenever you're about to eat, can you just jot down the time and just even a very general sense of mood? Like, are you happy, sad, anxious? Like, I tried to make it as simple as possible. Yeah. And just so we can start to see a trend. Like, how are you, how is your body working? How, you know, how are you functioning in your existence? Because it's so important to recognize those things. Yeah, and then the connection of the mind, because... As you also know, a lot of people, that's one great way to control everything is by using or not using the food that they eat. And um, I always make a joke that my husband's so bored of, but whenever they ask me what type of water I want in um, in the in a restaurant, I actually think about it. I'm like, hmm, choice. <laughs> flat. He's like, you always have flat. Why don't you just say that you want flat? I'm like, because I'm enjoying the, the fact that I have choice. <laughs> And it always reminds me just this thing of like, no, use your brain, you know. And and once you've had all this help and 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 the help, listen, I I don't know it. A lot of these things and a lot of therapy stuff aren't covered by insurance and aren't easy to get to. And a lot of people are in, you know, in religious situations where they can't even open it. You know, they're not around these these conversations and or there are a lot of people that just don't have the means to get the things we're talking about but it is one of the basic things that I think the internet if you can get to the internet or you know there are ways in food banks now even in things that there's there are people that are talking about nutrition and food as the basics you know you have to get it's the Ericksonian pyramid of needs right you have to get your basics met before you can even have these conversations about mental suffering and emotional suffering and everything but it once you have those met I think it's really just as important to nurture your mind and your body and your soul um yes and then on top of it when we're talking about activism then then the next stage is really important I think to nourish your spirit and to feel the connectedness and activism, I mean, one of the things that blew my mind, um, so I started doing activism very young in, in letter writing. But then, um, as I started my own band when I was in university in London, I just got fed up of people not paying me to play. And also I just got fed up of using my energy to rehearse, you know, six hours a, a, a week to then just play to five, six people. So I decided that if you wanted me to play a gig at your place, you had to host a charity too. So that's how I, yeah, because I thought, well, at least someone will get paid. And so that's what happened. (laughs) I started 
I started, and that became just my rent in my head. I changed the meaning of it. So then I didn't mind not getting paid because I'm raising awareness for all these incredible courses that really need awareness. And so that did re- it really worked for me. It made me really happy, and I ended up working in bigger, bigger venues, bigger places, bigger charities. I ended up being an ambassador and helping, you know, being in, the, in, in big committees, raising money, like, you know, tens of thousands for bees and for this and getting all my musician friends to do the big events. And I had this incredible journey. But one of the things I also understood, I learned so much from the CEOs of all these charities because, you know, I very much am an in You've noticed this about me. I'm an inner person. I'm very much interested in the inner workings, right? Yeah. So it it would eventually get to that type of conversation. Ten out of ten are working because something happened to someone that they couldn't help or something happened to them. Yes. I mean, and I I think for some of us, it's, it's more right on the surface. Or maybe it is. For me, anyways, I hear you say that. And it's like, I look back at my 24-year-old self, just the life I was living or the lack of life I was living. It was just like, get up, work, get on the treadmill, go home, do it again. And just, you know, and I, I was recognizing, thankfully, I had a little bit of foresightness where I was looking at managers and directors and partners above me and seeing their marriages and relationships crumbling and how stressed out they were and how much older they looked compared to other people doing more soulful work, you know, of the same age. And you can just see, like, the difference. Like, even when you look at Obama, like, coming into office and coming out of office, like, you can see what chronic stress does to a person over eight years, ten years, or an entire career. Absolutely. Yeah, so I was just seeing those things and thought, I don't know that I'm on the right path here, or I, I don't I don't know what I want to do, but I know it's not that. Like, I think I'm treading down the wrong path. But oh, it, and that's that voice. Absolutely. See, because your job could be great for someone else, and that's where, like, I think one of the choices also where people like you and I can, because we've spent a lot of time with it, it's, it's obvious, it's to help people understand why they're doing what they're doing. Because if you can help them, help them understand the values of what they're doing, then it's not exhausting. I mean, I'm releasing my new, my new album on my own. And I work four to five hours a day now for two and a half years to do it. Remember, I've written the songs, I've recorded it all, I've mastered it all, I've done all the artwork, I've done all the legals, I've done all the... It goes on and on and on. I'm doing now all the gigs, I'm now rehearsing. It goes on and bloody on, for no money, by the way. And so I've got to deal with that. It's like the worst relationship I've ever had. But, um, you know, because deep in my soul, I love it, I do it. doesn't mean I don't get angry. And especially with what's happening to the scene and music, we have no support. Doesn't mean no. I don't get angry, but it does mean that it motivates me to do it. In the past, I was doing a lot of things with the same energy for other people, and my motivation was just to keep them alive. And I thought that's what made me happy, but it wasn't nurturing me. And so I got tired and I got sick 
And I got all sorts of weird things happening to my body, you know, and it was my body going, hello, something's up. And I ignored it and I ignored it. And then that means it just get the things get bigger, you know, uh, they get louder and bigger get, and heavier. <laughs> and so it's just so amazing that the people in my life and my own insight and being able, being able to use my brain and having the amazing women in my life, my grandmother, who's, um, who's an artist and she's self made woman and she's, uh, well, I was going to say feminist, but I don't know what feminist, but she's the kind of woman who'd say to me, I'm going to disown you if I ever see you, you know, looking, um, thinking you can get away with that using your looks to get something. Oh. Or one day, I, one day I hadn't seen her in like a few years and I walk into her house. I'm going to spend the weekend with her. And she doesn't look at me. She looks straight at my feet. I'm like, Nana, what are you doing? And she's like, oh, thank goodness, come in. And I'm wearing these kind of quite sensible black uh, kind of boots. <laughs> she's like, oh, I just went and had tea with um, with these ladies who lunch, you know, like my, my friends, I guess. I don't know if they're my friends. But anyway, so they spent an hour talking about shoes. <laughs> And I just couldn't understand it. I was like, we are the women who, you know, <laughs> helped America wear stockings, who helped whatever, you know, who suffragettes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we're here spending our time. And most of us will die before we next see each other. By the way, my grandma's turning 90 next year. And she's this is like three years ago. She said, like, so here we are spending our time talking about shoes. And I said it to her. I said, okay, I'm just going to say this, even though, um, what did you say? Even though I might be causing social suicide or something, I don't know what she said, but I want to say this, I think it's ridiculous that we're spending our time talking about things that make us helpless, make us vulnerable, make us look like giraffes when we try and walk or run down the street. And, and, and I think it's ridiculous that you don't understand that wearing heels is just another subjugating whatever, 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 you know. So I'm just so happy that you're wearing sensible shoes today. <laughs> no no what are you talking about now that's extreme and I would say well, you know if I want to wear great heels it's because I want to wear great heels I don't care if a guy's going to look at them or not but I'm sure there's some women out there who are wearing heels because they don't think that they're attractive to to men if they don't and I've heard that there's some places that they force women in the workplace to wear high heels you know yes. not okay not okay so um but my grandmother taught me about color, about painting, about writing. She throws books at me, feminist literature, which I've read. I, I, and that's the other thing we haven't spoken about. The best tool is to read. Just read. Read everything. Yes. Like just read all different eras. Go back to like, you know, go to Oscar Wilde and go up to like someone modern and go to whatever, you know, and find the voices you like and just write. I, I am obsessive i write everything i like at the backs of books my oh books. i write all in them i write on the <laughs> margins i write questions yes. to myself i write yes. questions for other people i circle me too absolutely do that you know and because books film art music this is what i believe those are the things that we do when shit hits the fan and meaninglessness has kicked in or we're confused or we want to explain something that our language, you know, everyday language of use won't 
weren't really put in the way that we wanted. So we need like a cord or we need a, a, you know, a hue of color. And because in Buddhism, I've learned that we all want the same thing, which is to be happy. I believe that whenever you see a piece of art in any of its form, including writing, that is a manifestation of one of us showing us what they went through when they were going through this process. So we resonate with that without even knowing it, I believe, in an unconscious level. And think about it. I mean, there are very few, there's a beautiful fish, actually, that's an artist, but there are very few um, animals that do art for art's sake, but we do. Yes. And I think sometimes, I mean, books books are a set, separate thing when I make this statement. I, I mean, when people ask me who my mentors are, oftentimes I've just answered and, you know, I think people have thought I've been kind of cheeky about it, but just said books. I mean, there are certainly a lot of people I learn from in life, but books are are and have been since I was a very small girl, where yeah. I went for answers, where I went for ideas. But I think when you're talking about art, when you, you know, you use like sometimes you just need a chord. Um, yeah. I assume that was C-H-O-R-D and to kind of yeah. hear it <laughs> resonating. Yeah. Um, it makes me think, and I, I realized I never answered your question from earlier about you were wondering if I was painting. Painting, yeah. Um, the project that I'm working on after years of conversations and not making, I make a lot of change and I make a lot of conversation, but I don't make a lot of things with my hands. And I was hearing about the task list as for some women, an enormous sense of, of comfort and control. I think you and I use it as a as a comfort. Like, let me just get yeah. out of my head what I did, what I didn't do, but let me, like, just stop, have it turning over in my brain. Let me just record it somewhere. Yes. But sure. I was also hearing other women describe the task list as this weapon because they they don't allow themselves the forgiveness or dare I even tread into the the territory of celebration. Like, this is what I did accomplish today, as opposed mm. to look at everything I didn't. And I think you would appreciate this part of the story, too. For, I don't know, a better part of a year, I was just dreaming about creating this art exhibit using task lists. And it's big. Like, in my head, it's big, and it's it's noisy, and and really visceral. And on some level, I, I wonder if I'm a bit of a masochist where it's kind of like I'm on a mission to collect. I've been just using the number 33,000 handwritten task lists for women. Mm -hmm. And I, I believe there's a certain energy imbued when like someone's hand made the letters and it's written in their words. Yeah. And what if I collected enough to make it big and I'm still working out like, you know, would it be an installation and would it be really chaotic? Would it be something orderly, but just the number of the lists would be a, you'd have a quite you'd have quite a visceral reaction to it. And so I think you're right. And I think there's a lot of ideas that I can't get past the visual to actually describe in the words. But I keep thinking mm -hmm. when other women see 30,000 plus task lists from other women, I have to think that there will be this like really strong reaction. 
and and my hope is that it will jar women into critically thinking about like what is my relationship with my own task list and more importantly what is my relationship to obligation versus desire i love that and it's a very meaningful exercise and it's also it's something that i think every person in society can look at and you can see you can see a lot of different social phenomena at play there you know that's cool are you going to paint it I'm thinking more some sort of decoupage or collage. Cool. And, you know, I, well, I think yeah. I think it's going to take me so long to, I mean, I think right now I'm at probably around 700 lists. So I certainly probably have another decade of collecting unless this hits a tipping point <laughs> anytime soon. Um, so I feel like I can still... How you doing? Three volumes? <laughs> I know. <laughs> there you go. But it's, I think you're a right. trilogy. That's true. A little trip. Well, it'd be interesting for you because I think that I don't know. I'm just really enjoying this this whole time traveling thing. You know, you you learn so much in hindsight, but you need something behind you to make it in hindsight. Today, I paid. I made an order for my first um, 300 vinyl copies for my album. Yes. This How does that feel? Two, um, I I wanted to like go and take drugs, which I have never <laughs> taken. I was like, oh, this is a feeling. I hated it. I had so much resistance. I have waited. I have found every excuse not to push the buy button. I was just like, no, oh, gosh. And then I did it. The surge of energy just made me go, wow, that's incredible. And all of a sudden, I can already feel it. I can feel all these new things. Your mind just rewards you with new insights and feelings, you know. What helped you be brave in that moment? Because I imagine, especially, like, I feel like I'm curating in terms of the 33K task list project. I feel like I'm curating and more observing. But you are expressing yourself in this really vulnerable way on this album. What helped yeah. you hit go on, on just making that order? Um, because it's more painful not to. it's that simple isn't it no no but that is taking me so long to get that and that comes from a real place of self-love like I know that I want to move on energetically and this is you know this this album is called Monument and you're a lover of words so I'll share this with you so I love a I love the mnemonics of it monument I think it's a beautiful word um Secondly, I love what a monument stands for. There's a few versions of it, which is one, it's um, it's uh, normally a building or something we erect to commemorate something that's happened in the past, which I thought was really poignant, you know, for the, the relationship of my dad and I. It also, though, can mean it's a reminder of what not to do again, you know, when you go and see, like, uh, yes. the Holocaust monument or you see the whatever, you know, it's a reminder of not to do again. And I would also argue that relationships are beautiful monuments. And when someone dies, the relationship doesn't end. It just changes. You know, you're still in relationship. I still think about my dad, about him. I don't cry about him as much anymore, but he definitely imbues a lot of my decision making and you know I always wish he was here and this and this and that. So the monument that we have together is a living a living monument. 
I think relationships are that. Absolutely. I mean, having having lost my dad when I was 26. Oh, it, I'm sorry. Yeah, thank you. It's, they never are not a part of your life. I mean, I, you know, I think to all sorts of moments, you know, when, when Craig and I got married and I had to decide who's going to walk me down the aisle. Yeah. And just thinking yeah. of those things or just in the day to day or even, you know, especially now at this time of year, like unpacking Christmas ornaments and yeah. pulling them out. And, and each one has such a story to it. And, you know, you think back to all these moments. So it's a beautiful metaphor. And it's such a, it's like just the idea of monument in all the the connotations that you just described is so, so, so smart and creative and interesting and poetic all at the same time. Well, poetry is what gets us through the night, really, isn't it? I mean, that, you know, we, you know, we were talking about our heroes, and you were saying there were mentors, and you said books. You know, I immediately also think of songwriters. So I listen to songwriters, and Dylan being my favorite. I mean, when he won the Nobel uh, Literature Prize, I, I hundred percent agreed because I've always read him that, that literature. You know, I've, I have been in his songs and in my mind, and we all have, I think, to an extent, and his lyrics and then I just obviously fell in love with my father's lyrics and all these kind of lyrics of different people and yeah I obsessively listen to lyrics I read lyrics um like if they were books you know true true because I always think of of song lyrics and for me I have I don't know maybe I have latent musical skills that I've just never cultivated underneath. But I think of myself as someone with no musical ability. So for me, like you said, being a a, a, a sister lover of words, it's the mm. lyrics that have always grabbed me. And it makes me think, like, I mean, they really are the poetry set to music. You know, Absolutely. I can listen to a song if the lyrics are good and the music's terrible, but you'll very rarely find me listening to you know but unless it's really late at night and I don't care but I'm in a bar with lots of friends but I will generally <laughs> generally kind of go for for good lyrics and uh what's a good lyric to me is I like things that play with my mind you know and take me to places and I love songs that take me on journeys and then I also really love incisive you know, writers that have managed to get one emotion and just really distill it in a beautiful way with, with uh, like, like Nick Cave said, you know, for example, a love song without tragedy can't be a love song. You know? uh, so you, you must be a fan of Leonard Cohen as well. Uh, he's in my <laughs> top three. Yeah. No, I, I mean, Leonard Cohen is my, was my neighbor in Hydra where I live in Greece. And uh, I'm very, in tune with with his work obviously he's also a buddhist was a buddhist so i followed him in that regard too and i it's it, weird enough my father didn't like leonard cohen that was one of the only musical tastes we didn't share he was just like life's too miserable to also add leonard cohen to it that was <laughs> <laughs> i disagreed completely but you know, he came from 
uh, so progressive rock, one of the things they did so well, you know, with the costumes and the beautiful, elaborate um, art, you know, the, the, the artwork and, and the, the, the set design and all these kind of masks and Genesis and Peter Gabriel, whatever, was they'd create these fantastical stories kind of back to what we were talking about, the Marvel comics, you know. Yeah. This is, this is the musical equivalent, you know. My dad's songs, for example, one of the ones I'm singing with Bridget St. John, his his colleague, which I'm really enjoying, I'm, I'm singing here in New York, is called The Oyster and the Flying Fish. And you're like, okay. But it's actually a love song between an oyster who I think is meant to represent the female who you know, always stays in one place because it's an oyster. And the flying fish that always has to fly because she's a fly, but the flying fish really wants to be in love with the oyster and stay in one place. And the oyster really wants to be able to fly, but they can't because one's an oyster and one's a flying fish. So it's never going to work. But the beauty of it and the beauty of of words and of music and of coming at things like that from such a creative place... Right, like, that's why I think like we could talk about that so matter of factly, and like, well, they yeah. just you know their relationship is doomed. But yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's so a it's very British because British never tell you what they really think, <laughs> and and two, it's it's really smart because the philosophies that they were all uh, uh, that they were all reading and, and at the time was that man can't take too much of the truth. If you give man too much, man, woman, whatever, humans, too much of the truth, you know, it's just too much for them. So people love fantasy. They love, that's why I think the genre of fantasy in in movies, genre is so huge, you know, because it allows you to connect without having to see that that's your mother, your father, your lover, whatever, you, you know, instead it's, it's a dragon, it's a this, it's a that, it's a whatever. So poetry for me is the same. You know, I just think we're so lucky to, to be able to be creatures that can do this stuff. And it's all the same thing to me. And I think that's one of, oh, you, you, back to your question about the modern woman. I don't know if it's just the modern woman, but I do think the modern artist is someone who really understands the muscle behind all the things we're talking about, including self-help. And, and, and being the master of your own life and creating your own life and poetry and music and art to recognize that's all the same muscle. And I don't think you need to just do one thing anymore. You can write a book. This is what I intend to do. And then the next year do a, an album and then next year just do pastries and the next year, you know, go and work in an accountancy firm. I think we're at an era where it's not about specialization. It's about being disciplined and being good at what you do, of course. You know, still good work, good technique, etc. But you don't have to define yourself in a small box anymore. Do you agree? I do, and it's funny as you were as you were saying that, I found myself thinking about it being and maybe this is I mean, we always think of things through our own perspective and our own lenses often. I think what it makes me consider is strengths and how we're using them. And and I know that's something I talk a lot with my clients and often try to help them distill. But it's like underneath, I know in my career, 
right? Like if you compare like some of my major stops, like, all right, trouble debt restructuring and bankruptcy, controller at a startup, health and lifestyle strategist, to to someone that do, hasn't taken enough time to like ask a few questions, I'm sure there are a lot of people that like go to my website and are like, what is this Fruit Loop doing? But un- <laughs> but underneath all of it, you know, like we talked about earlier, it's the same core skill set. It's the same muscles I'm exercising. Yeah. It's just would yeah. I rather speak to women and and in some way reach back to my 24-year-old self and say, hey, it doesn't have to be this way. You don't have to be burnt out. You don't have to be overwhelmed and you don't have to feel this unhealthy. And you actually have a lot of control over how to fix this. And I just want to remind you of that. I mean, I think at the core of all my work, it's that's sort of driving me. But it's really then just like fact-finding, data collection, analysis, motivational interviewing, problem-solving, and creating a plan. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and it's, it sounds to me like you are a beautiful example of, of that, what we're talking about. And that's very authentic. And I'm sure it wasn't easy because a lot of people equate happiness, enlightenment, meaningfulness with with easy going easy ride <laughs> uh, no pain no this and it's really quite the opposite and I think a lot of times people go well why doesn't she leave him you know if she's if he's beating her up or whatever whatever and I said because a lot of people rather stay with what they know because the unknown is scary and they haven't realized that you know that they that everything changes all the time and sometimes it's okay to wait for life to change something for you because it will. Yes. So you need to understand whether you want it to be changed for you so you don't have any choice or you decide, okay, well, I'm going to do these actions so that I can change this in a way that gives me choice. And really that's something that's happening all day, every day for all of us, I think. And um, Agreed. Yeah. yeah. Agreed. Agreed. But I, I was going to say something. When I heard you say that, I just wanted to say that I thought, um, ah, you you reminded me of that classic saying that you, you you know you you teach what you have to learn. Oh yes, yes. We we sign and, up for the lessons we need in this life. Right, <laughs> right. And I, you know, I I'm definitely there with you at the moment because I'm just starting this this uh, retreat company with a friend of mine, and it dawned on me about a month ago. I was like, wow, I'm really in this journey on so many ways, and I don't want to choose between the kind of mental well being, artistic well being, performance well being, and being a performer and an artist myself. This is, I don't have to choose. Okay, I'm going to go to bed tonight and I'm going to come up with a name <laughs> and an idea. Yes, I love this. I woke up and in my brain it said, tune in retreats. Nice. I was like, I was like well, that's nice, but there's no way that .com isn't taken. I mean, that's pretty brilliant and it's so, it's broad, but it also, it isn't. It really explains what I believe in about tuning into yourself to find your inner voice using technique, but also really in an authentic, meaningful way. I go online and it was free. What? So I bought it. So here I am. And now this lady who's an incredible lady, Heather Lyle, who has her own 
vocal yoga technique. She's just a dream. She's just geeky as they come, but also just such a great musician herself. And I have put these uh, retreats together, which is starting in in uh, May next year. And this, everything you and I are talking about, Cara, is what we'll be discussing and also physically doing, you know, with vocal exercises and yoga exercises and walking. Um, it's actually going to be in Greece on, on the island I live in, Hydra, and walking in nature and seeing the connection of everything and talking about meaningfulness as performers and really connecting everything so that you can use everything to do what you want. Oh, love the sound of this. And please, as as everything starts to form, and I know you're you're still sort of working on the website probably at this point and planning, but please yes. make sure that I have that information and I'm, I'll make sure to, to send it out through my channels, but also oh, make sure I it's in the show that. notes and, and everything else so people can find it. I would love that. No, that would be fantastic. I'm so excited because it also it allows me to do music and everything with more ease in my heart, knowing that I'm living a balanced life if I do both. That makes sense. Well, it just, it makes you sound like such an integrated human being, right? Like, <laughs> like you, and, and integrated may mean something slightly different in an academic sense, in a psychology sense, but... I think just this idea, I mean, just as we've listened to your conversation, it's, you know, the the way that you pulled activism into music, the way that you're using this retreat to fully express all of these parts of you without having to sort of like take off one hat, like gallon the activist and then you sort of put that on a hat stand and then you put on a new hat that's like gallon the the songwriter and then oh but now in this next hour okay take that hat off and put the like put the activist hat back on or the writer hat on and this constant juggling I mean to me it just sounds so self-actualized to be able to be doing all of these things and just kind of being who you are and not getting caught up in all of the bullshit around the the presentation of self to the outside world. Yeah. Which does happen, by the way, but it happens less and for shorter periods of time. What's helped you achieve that? I know that's a huge question, too. <laughs> uh, well, I think I'm, you know, I thank you so much for this opportunity to talk to you because it allows me to clarify and see where my integrity is. And I think I keep saying the same thing, just in different, you know, metaphors and stuff, which is that um, it's back to this idea of no right or wrong or judgment. And that has to come from a place of understanding that it's okay to breathe and do the best you can, knowing you've done your best you can today and trusting and all these kind of words that are so, um, and being grateful and, and surrendering all these words that aren't really what people want to hear, you know, anymore. People <laughs> feel that they want to hear how to achieve, how to explain this. I read in a book, it was called Why People Hate Poets. I forget the author now, I should remember. It's a local guy in Brooklyn. But one of the things he said, he's like, 
whenever you're a poet, one of the worst things that you have to go through being a poet is having to put up with people at you know midnight after too many drinks in a bar telling you how they used to be a poet once. <laughs> and he then goes on to explain, he's like, I think one of the reasons why people love to hate, oh, no, so why do we love to hate poets? I think that's what it's called. I think one of the reasons that they people love to hate poets is because essentially we all are poets. And when we see someone that is actually able to you know, tick all the boxes and, and live a life and, and be accepted and et cetera, et cetera, all the things, the trappings of the outside, that there's a part of us that is yearning to be that too. And I'm not really sure where I'm going with this, but I know there's the resonance there of truth about it's not what you do, it's why you do it. So if I go to a party with my husband and I put on a beautiful dress because I want him to only look at me and not all the other beautiful girls, it's very different than me going to a party with my husband putting on a beautiful dress because I love this dress and I just feel fucking great and I don't care who he's looking at or anyone's looking at or how anyone looks. In fact, I love the fact that that lady's wearing a great dress and that one, whatever. And I love that my husband and I can discuss how beautiful everyone looks in the room. Do you know what I mean? Yes. As someone who has like these days, I don't drink as often. And when I have that sometimes second drink and definitely if I have a third drink, which is rare these days, Mm-hmm. I basically get in the car and then spend the entire ride home with Craig telling him what I loved about every person in the room and how yeah. awesome <laughs> and, and amazing they are. And did you hear about this album they wrote? Or did you hear about this book that they recommended? That was so kind of them to do that. Like, I mean, it's just absurd. Like, I get drunk and That's get completely nice. lovey. But there, but there is a totally different energy that you're describing right? Like one is choosing, I don't know if it's like kind or, you know what I mean? Like it's, I get it. And now I'm fumbling for the words even worse. <laughs> yeah. It's hard no, because I think intention, I think what we're, the intention yeah, is the intention different. behind things. And then, you know, if you want to, if you want to put it in the, in the head, if you want to, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, intellectualize. If you want to intellectualize it, I think what I'm trying to say is that it's not what you do, it's why you do it that matters. And that's what really helps me. And when it's why you do things, things like, well, I'm doing this to because it means something to me because it's something that my dad uh, wanted me to do or something in, you know, in his will or whatever, whatever, then it comes from a different energy than oh, I'm doing this because I have to and I'm doing this or whatever, whatever. And with that, the with the latter energy, it's kind of very difficult to, to find compassion when you do something. Whereas when you're doing it from a place of value for yourself, I think that it's easier to do things like, well, you know, if this doesn't make me happy, I'm not going to do it. Or, okay, I'm, today I'm tired or I'm going to focus on this. Or my brain, this side of my brain is working better. It's, it's just about being logical about illogical things. That's why we're finding it hard to find words, <laughs> I think. So you can erase that whole bit of the interview. But no, it's we have beautiful. To come, <laughs> we have to somehow come up with a way. And this is what's interesting. I think 
you know, in these podcasts, in these things that we're all doing, we're creating new ways of expressing um, really deep, really almost aquatic things in a way that are so, you know, as close to surreal as we're going to get, really, because we're talking about things. I don't even know if your definition of love is the same as mine, yet we're assuming that we can have a conversation, you know. And um, I don't even know if I could put it into words, to be honest, which is, it's so interesting that I ask every woman on the podcast, you know, what their definition of being a modern woman is, you know, just like, what is the definition of love? And I think there's, I never expect a right answer. And I always, always, always implicitly understand the gravity of which that question has, <laughs> right? Like, it's, it's not an easy question because it's coming from the totally unique lens of every woman I get to virtually sit across from. Absolutely. Um, speaking of that question, there are two other questions that I always like to piggyback with that. And I feel like you've probably answered this in other parts of the interview, like as I've been listening, you know, I, I think you've had a lot of amazing things to say that could be an answer to this um, mm -hmm. or these two questions. So if you want to take a pass, I totally understand. Okay. Um, but what would you like to see modern women give more of a shit about? The quality of the relationships that they're in, I think is super important. I think that you learn so much from being in a relationship and you... Um, you can also be in a relationship and not be conscious about the damage it could be causing you. And I think a lot of women have been told not to question um, these roles, whether it be by their family or be by um, different parts of the of society. I uh, I think women can still have everything they want without having to deny their femininity, like their monthly cycles and maybe a, a natural tendency to, to you know, take care of other people more or to uh, be more empathetic or um, nurture. And that doesn't mean that men don't have that either, by the way. I'm not a man hater in any way. <laughs> um, Nor am I. Yeah, and uh, I think the biggest thing I've learned is really about self-judgment. Whatever you do, don't compare yourself to others and that um, to see yourself as a story, your life is a story and that you really are truly the author and that really I can attest to that. Like I'm really an example of that. I'm someone who in many ways had a very low, 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 low chance of ever feeling joy Um again and I really have achieved it and I've achieved it with women helping me and a lot of great men helping me too but a lot of it has been 80% has to be you and you've just got to live with that and 20% is what you do out there and that ratio works for me you know so lovely to hear I feel like I want to offer you another virtual hug I, I think it's such <laughs> such sage Thank advice you. And I know as, as part of that, I definitely heard the, the call to women not letting judgment sink them, not being weighed down by that. Is there anything else you'd like to see modern women give less of a shit about? Don't take things so personally. 
Oh, brilliant. <laughs> a lot of people are just doing what they're doing for them. It's got nothing to do with you. Like, really ask yourself, you know, is it your business? And then if you really actually care, you know, you're allowed to ask that question. True, true. And what do you most want Levital Corsalon listeners to know? Uh, that shit happens and shit happens to everyone. <laughs> and that pain is an inevit- inevitable part of life that shouldn't necessarily be taken um, personally. But I do think suffering, you do have choices of how long the suffering is going to be and, and, and you know, how you can how you can find ways of using that suffering as a fuel. Like, see it as a fuel that's never going to run out, so you may as well find, you know, a sustainable way of, of making use of it. And as I said, from my experience, most charities, most miracles that we see around the world are done by people who are suffering. And so that should give us a really good, um, you know, a, a good call to action. And that it's really okay in between when shit happens and things feel better again in the middle. It's really okay to watch a great movie, listen to a great record, read a great book until it all makes sense again. And that is, I think, a very natural part of being a human. That is so profound. I'm, I'm having trouble finding the words. <laughs> and I, when I started this podcast, I feel like... Mm. You know, I think some of my clients that listen and listen on the regular or any of the other listeners that are tuning in, it's, you know, I think there's a, when I started this, I, I wanted to, to reach out to other women and hear like what, what was allowing them to persevere? What allows them to accomplish all the things that they're accomplishing? Like what's really happening because we're getting stuff done, we're, we're figuring stuff out, and really yeah. asking women to share. And I think it's so important, because I could, you know, I could easily have a podcast by myself and just say, you should do this, you should do that. But I think women coming and sharing their wisdom and sharing their experience, and then having a mic drop moment like you just did is... <laughs> It's so important that we hear it in in different sound bites and in different voices and from different perspectives so that we as women can stop suffering from the the burnout and the overwhelm and and really be living what I like to call and I know it's probably like kind of marketing speak but living closer to a life spiked with passion and slathered with joy. Um, sounds like a really yummy cake. <laughs> it does, kind of. But my, my, my great should be yummy, yeah. right? <laughs> it should. My great grandmother, who I had the fortune to meet, <gasps> used to make these huge, beautiful cakes. She used to walk around with her hand like underneath the cake in, in, the, in the dish and be like, "Darling, look how light this is. This can't possibly be fattening." <laughs> No, that's not how it works, but yes. <laughs> if only cakes, know, right? cake's effect in the body was measured by its actual mass and density. <laughs> well, you know, maybe one day. <laughs> we can only live to hope. 
I think it's fabulous what you're doing and you're doing exactly what I think modern women should be doing. We should be listening to each other. And I don't know, have you, did you watch the episode Feud? No, tell me more. Between Bette Midler and, uh, I'm going to forget the other lady. It was like uh, they did those movies. Who's afraid of um, what happened? Whatever happened to Baby Jane and stuff? Oh, the one with Joan Crawford and jo- that's it. So yeah. Joan Crawford and Bette Midler. Yes. So feud is about this feud they supposedly had, which they had a little bit of. But what you realize in this TV series is that all the actually it did happen to be men in the studios were actually fanning their feud. They actually wanted to be friends and made a lot of effort to be friends. But it was in the interest of the studios and to sell the films to pin the women against each other. And they would use things like gossip about their looks and how ugly the other one was or old or et cetera, et cetera. And it's a really sad expose on how women a lot of the times have been you know, pinned against other women. And what I love about talking to you and what I'm hearing in your philosophy and in your voice and in your happiness is that the modern woman should listen to the other modern woman and vice versa. And it's not about a right or wrong. It's about a process. You and I are having a conversation, hopefully when, you know, the people that are listening and the people that will listen will continue the conversation. Even if they get one word out of it, then we've already done our balancing act. And I'm okay with that. So actually what makes me happy, I think I've really lowered my expectations. (laughs) It's, you know, it's funny. I I read something recently and it was about happiness and science behind it and the the geeky stuff. Um, And I'm forgetting where the article came from. And they, of course, interviewed some Danish folks because that's the land that is statistically happier than anywhere else in the universe that we, we know of anyways. And it was interesting because the the Danish response, and obviously I'm boiling this down, was really like, we have lower expectations. Yeah. <laughs> Not low expectations. We just have lower expectations. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> they say that's the success to a good marriage, too. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm newlywed and madly in love with my husband. But, I, it's, it's been, you know, it's an interesting thing. Um talking about roles of women because I at some point had to realize that I was also falling into a role of being a wife and I had to go whoa 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 why am why is it making me feel so good to make this stew for my husband when he comes back from work what the hell is going on and it's because I have had this thought I understand yeah I really have and it's because I'm primed you know just like I was primed to be a good daughter and I never would have let my father down, no matter what, you know, twisted things happen because I was primed to be a good daughter. And it wasn't until another man said to me, well, you know, at what point did you decide that this was okay? And I was like, well, at what point did you think I had a choice? You know, and then this glass shattered in front of me, like metaphorically, I really felt it. And that was the beginning of my second life. And, um, and you can really fall into these roles. And it's the same with, with women, you know, I, I'm only one of the great things about getting older is that you get on with women better because there's less competition and it's really sad. But no one told me the good bits about it, which is, hey, all these female friends now. No, but um, all jokes aside, it's it's interesting how you always have to be on guard 
of why you're doing what you're doing. Yes, there's that intention again, right? Like that's back to the intention, and it's so easy to fall. Like you know, my husband wants me to do everything that I dream to do, and he's just the most supportive, fun, creative person. We work together. We'd always you know not work together, whatever. And still sometimes we both just fall into these roles, but we're able to talk about it. And that's what you and I do. We're talking and talking is energy, it's movement. You know, movement is what we need, constant movement. Yes. And I, I think, you know, and I, I think you saw, and when I sent over the questions that I use the expression, yeah. it's a pedestal free zone. Because yeah. I really wanted this to be a place where we can have these conversations and not from the... I think there's a lot of podcasts out there and, you know, I'm guilty of presenting my story in such a way that like, oh, well, I figured it all out, right? Like I had this challenge, you know, at this point in my life and then you figure it out and you can put the nice neat bow on it. And I am so grateful to have women like you step forward and come and have these conversations and and from this really honest and thoughtful place, but also from this place of like, I haven't figured it all out either. Like, we're all on the road together. And, you know, if we stop being rivals and tearing each other apart, there's so much that we can learn and apply from others' mistakes, others' successes. There's just even the stories themselves. I mean, Think about Buddhism, yeah. right? Like how many of the the lessons in terms of Buddhism are taught through story, right? It's not like the Ten Commandments. It's a story. And by the way, Buddhism isn't perfect either when it comes to feminism because, I mean, not Western Buddhism, but classical Buddhism, women aren't ever going to get enlightened. Forget it, you know. So who knew? Everyone. I yeah, had no idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there are... Um, you know, everything's a work in progress, and I think that's okay. And I think what you're saying is what I believe, that if I have lived a life, a fat life, not a thin, straightforward, I've got to get to X, a fat, messy, juicy life that kind of waddles into <laughs> kind of where my intention is, I hope that by the time I look back at my life in my coffin or whatever, cremation that I would do, whatever, that I've contradicted myself, that I've, that I've, you know, changed my mind, that I've changed places that I live, that I've, you know, I, that I've tried things and failed and then that did other things. And that's, this is a canvas, you know, it's not about, perfectionism in I mean I suffered from perfectionism so badly and it was like when I realized that oh shit I'm not perfect it took me 30 years I was like perfect now I'm perfect because I'm imperfect uh, yes oh Gallon, I can't thank you enough like not even just for being a podcast guest but coming into my world and my God, I'm so grateful to Chandler, like beyond words, grateful for introducing us. And I want to come visit when I next come Please, you can come see my glamorous beauty board paneled sewing room that is the only place I have in the house that has no windows to record. <laughs> oh, 
Oh, that's amazing. Good for you. Do you have squirrels? I'm more interested in squirrels. You mentioned we squirrels. We have... So we have one, I feel like Craig and I, he's a little bit the enemy at this point because he is digging holes all over our yard to hide nuts, but he is the biggest, (laughs) fattest squirrel I have ever seen in my life. And it's to the point now, now, (laughs) when we see him digging, we like actually both of us like knock on the window and we're like, hey, (laughs) because we have literally all these little... We couldn't figure out what animal was making it. And then we finally put it together that it's this giant fat squirrel. So, yes, we have squirrels and skunks and all sorts of goofy things and an, and a spare guest bedroom. So, please, you and your husband are more than welcome to come visit us. I'm going to take you up on that because I'm so – I want to find a place up there. I, I know this city for me – it's really great to meet everyone and be here right now, but it's going to be, it's not going to be long before I have to, I have to change, change scene. Well, we're happy to introduce you to the scene up here. So amazing. And maybe there'll be a part two of this podcast. <laughs> hey, I'm completely up for it. Next, next year, your support would mean so much to me. I will be putting out my album alone and I will be also doing these retreats alone. And so it's just this kind of amazing, it's just going to be a crazy time. So yes, female and energy, definitely, um, definitely needed and wanted. And I will make sure that everyone has the links to everything that you're up to. And, you know, please keep me updated as that changes too. But I, I will make sure that all of it is in the show notes, but truly from my heart, from my gut, from my soul. This has been such a a wonderful learning conversation and one that I know is going to stretch me and make me think for days, if not weeks beyond. So I am so grateful for you and I'm so grateful to have this time with you. Thank you, Thank you. Gallen. And send me any any questions or anything that comes up you want to keep talking because you're helping me so much clarify like what I want to just be, my next my next being phase. Oh. I turned 40 on the 27th, so in two weeks. Oh, nice. It's a biggie. Yeah, I know. And this just, I love that I'm speaking to you before, et cetera. So it'll be, um, it'll be amazing. Well, happy almost birthday and thank, thank you, you again. Big kiss to you. Thank you. It's Kara. I'm back again. You probably thought I was all talked out after that interview with Gallen, but that's a pretty tall feat. Thank you so much for tuning in and spending some of your time with me and my guests. If you've been inspired by something you heard in this episode, please don't be stingy. Please share this podcast with one woman in your life. It could be a friend, it could be a family member, a co-worker. Mention it to your hairstylist the next time you're getting a haircut. Whatever. But you never know what other people are going through and they might need a little inspiration too. So please don't be stingy. Flip them a link or just tell them about the show. Besides you as a listener, there are a lot of people that make this show happen behind the scenes. It's so much more than just having a cool conversation and hitting record. And maybe some of you don't realize that, but 
My husband, Craig Snyder, is producing and a sounding board and making the sound of this show sound great all the time. So thank you, Craig. Also want to give a shout out to Rishi Deer of Elephant Stone and the High Dials for gifting me the right to use their most excellent song as a theme song. And also, I want to give a big shout out to Darlene Victoria, who helps me with so many parts of this podcast behind the scenes and making my life easier. Literally, hiring her got me days of my life back and allows me to focus my time on reaching out to guests and coming up with the questions and creating the show that you just got to listen to. So anyways, maybe it's Valentine's Day and I'm super schmoopy and I'm going on. But don't forget, you deserve a life spiked with passion and slathered with joy. Don't let bullshit or burnout slow you down.